Happy Sabbath, brethren. It is really a privilege to be here with you today, sharing in God's wonderful weekly holy day with you. It's always a privilege to be here in Charlotte and have the opportunity to speak with you as well. I'd like to thank Mrs. Lee and the ladies for that beautiful piece of special music and the reminder that what we become is not of us. It's what God is able to do in us and through us. Brethren, back in 1955, Pete Seeger released a single that became a popular piece and well-known in the 1960s and 70s. The song was entitled, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? I thought about bringing up a guitar and singing it to you today. And then I realized that I'm not the one that's gifted with music in my family. So I won't sing it to you. But the idea of this song begs the question of one of the verses. And that is, where have all the young men gone? Some of you may recall that line in the song. When we look around at society today, brethren, we look around at families today. We look at leaders today. We look at industry. It begs the question, where have all the real men gone? Where have all the real men gone? You know, we can ask that question in regard to education today. Where have all the men gone from education? When we look at college graduation rates in the United States today and around the world, In many, many nations, we see that somewhere between three-fifths and two-thirds of college graduates are women. Well, good on the women for that. But where are the men? Where are the men? In regard to industry today, we can ask the question, where have all the men gone? In 2012, July 2012, journalist Hannah Rosen wrote an article for The Atlantic entitled The End of Men. Some of you have read that. I know my students have. Students that have taken my Christian women class and the students have taken my Christian men class have both read this. But in the article, she points out that men, or excuse me, women are now the majority of workers in the public workplace today. Women are now the majority of workers. In fact, out of the top 15 leading professions in the United States, and this was in 2012, the trend has continued. Out of the top 15 leading professions in the U.S., women dominated 13 of them in 2012. And when we look at women's salaries, when we look at the numbers, women's salaries have been doing this. They've been going up while men's salaries have flattened out and have been going down. Contrary to what the media likes to tell us in certain presidential candidates, there's not a gap in earning anymore. In regard to families, today we can ask the question, where have all the fathers gone? Where have all the fathers gone? In the United States, roughly four out of ten children today are raised in fatherless families, 40%. What's sobering is that the number in other nations is even higher. If we look at France, 
50% of children and families today are raised without fathers. In Iceland, it's two-thirds. In Jamaica, it's three-fourths of all the children raised are raised without fathers. And the numbers go higher than that. And for families where there are fathers, how many fathers are physically present within those families? How many fathers are absent? They're too busy with work. They're too busy with other responsibilities. How many are absent emotionally? How many are absent temporally? Which means they're not spending time. How many are absent spiritually? The London Telegraph, July 3rd, 2013, ran an article, Why Do More Women Flock to Church? And the trend is not unique to Britain. But today what we see is not only are women attending church in droves far greater than men, but they're also the ones that are bringing the kids to church in most cases. Regarding society as a whole, we can ask, where have all the real godly men gone? You know, it's interesting. There are just about as many men today in the population in general as there were 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, populations are split pretty much down the middle. They haven't changed a whole lot over the decades. But why is it that there are fewer men with drive today, with ambition, with goals, who are leading their families, leading their lives, leading their jobs, and leading society? Why is this, and what can we do about it? What can you do about it? What can I do about it? This semester I'm developing and teaching a class on Christian men. It's one that's been on the books for Living University for years and one that's needed to be taught and finally it's being done. And it's been an interesting experience for me as I've analyzed what it means to be a Christian man. I think many of us may think about these topics on some level. But to sit down and think about it, to read about it, to study about it, to pray about it, to fast about it, to try and figure out what God's intentions are and why society has deviated so far from it, has been an interesting experience. It's been interesting for me, and I know it's been interesting for my students as well, to analyze this in detail. Brother, my purpose today is to give you several actions that families and God's church can take today to properly raise boys so that they become the men that God and their parents long for them to be. Today I want to talk to families. I want to talk to families. I want to talk to fathers. I want to talk to mothers. I want to talk to uncles. I want to talk to aunts. I want to talk to grandmas and I want to talk to grandpas. Probably just about everybody in here fits one of those roles or desires to fit that role in the future. The sermon's for everyone in this room. We have to figure out how we can connect with them and how we can apply what we learned today. What I'd like to do is help equip families, parents, grandparents, to raise sons, to raise grandsons in such a way that they become Truly godly men. And I also want to help encourage men. 
You, gentlemen, I am one as well. I want to encourage men to take action now to become even more of the type of godly man that God wants you to become. Thank you very much, Mr. Graham. <laughs> That's much more comfortable. God makes us in all shapes and sizes. So, today I've entitled the sermon, Raising Boys, Raising Men. Raising Boys, Raising Men. And I'd like to give you several action steps that you can begin to take to help in this process. If you're a boy, you need to chew on this and think about it. Because these things apply to you now and they will apply to you in the future. As you think about aspiring to become a godly father and a godly husband someday. This, these points definitely point to and can be helpful to fathers, to grandfathers. But they relate to everyone who's involved in raising boys. And believe it or not, think about us as a Christian family here today. We're all involved in raising our boys. We'll get to a sermon on raising girls in the future. That's not for today. But we're all involved. We're in the process, whether we like it or not. We heard a sermon just a little bit ago on the example that Barnabas set. And we were encouraged at the end of it to use that example. Brethren, all of our examples are powerful. Gentlemen, all our examples are powerful to boys. Ladies, all your examples are powerful to boys. Believe it or not. But what I'd like to do is give you a few points that we can think about and put into action. Point number one. How do we raise better sons and better men? How do we do this? Point number one is that fathers must be present. Fathers must be present. Well, how can that happen if in this country 40% of fathers are not? We'll get to that. Fathers must be present. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 will move back to the end of what we call the Old Testament. I like the way Dr. Meredith puts it, but what God calls Scripture. And let's read the end of the chapter. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. What do we see? We see a prophecy that God inspired Malachi to pen. <clears throat> Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We get a time sequence here. We, we understand where we are. We're at the end of the age, but we're before Christ's return. Verse 6. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Some of you know lyrics to a song along these verses. But it's interesting when we look at what Malachi had to write. He's writing a prophecy. And what was he prophesying about? Well, there's two things that are in this prophecy. One of the ways I like to teach from the Bible is to teach by what is not there. You know, God inspired this book, didn't he? 
He inspired all of it, as we're told in Timothy. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. God inspired what's here, but he inspired what's not here as well. What do I mean? Well, when we look at verses 5 and 6, we see a prophecy that there will come one to be involved in turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Why? What's not there? What's indicated? Because the hearts of the fathers are not turned to the children. And the hearts of the children are not turned to the fathers. There's something missing. God knew it would be missing at the end of the age. God knew where Satan would take society at the end of the age. We're living in a society that is destroying men, aren't we? When we look around, what do we see? Where are the male leaders? The godly ones with backbones, with courage, who can stand up. Where are they? Malachi was led to prophesy of this time when they would be absent. But God doesn't want them absent. God wants them involved. You know, listening to the first sermon today by Mr. Frank, one of the things I took away from his message on Barnabas was how much of a father figure Barnabas was. A father figure to Paul and a father figure to Mark. The way he encouraged, he admonished, he pushed from behind. We'll talk some more about that today. Matthew chapter 6. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 6. As we think about fathers have to be present. Fathers, many, many, many fathers are not present today in the lives of their children, in the lives of their wives. They're just not there. Sometimes they're physically removed. They're gone. But in other cases, they're there in name, but they're not engaged and they're not involved. Matthew chapter 6, we see the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Matthew 6, 19 and 20. We're reminded by Christ, he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. We're admonished by Christ, don't get your priorities out of whack. Keep them where they need to be. This world today, society, is all about stuff, isn't it? About getting this and getting that and purchasing this and looking for that. Our houses are filled with stuff. Our lives are filled with stuff. Society is filled with stuff. We had a hard time getting to church today with the traffic because people are going out to get more stuff. You know what I mean? Christ said, we've got to lay up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. You know what's amazing? Parents are given a gift with children, aren't we? Psalm 127. Let's go there together. To have a child is to be given a gift. Psalm 127. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. This happens to be a psalm of Solomon. Psalm 127.3. 
Actually, verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house. (laughs) We could probably all come up with the words for this psalm and close our Bibles because we sing the psalm. But verse 3 says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're an inheritance from God. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Children are a gift. Do we realize that? Do we recognize that? How much of society recognizes that? Kids are a gift of God. And whose image are they made in? Well, ours. We're talking about that with some brethren before services. But who are we made in? Whose image are we made in? You know the verse. Genesis 1.26. We're made in the image of them. Christ and the Father. Our kids are made in their image. Children are an inheritance of God. They're godly offspring, as Malachi also talks about. Parents are given a gift and a privilege to raise godly offspring. God's kids, if you will. Human beings that have the potential and the calling to grow up and become members of the God family themselves. And he's given us a short time with them. Christ in Matthew 19 was warning, don't lay up your treasures on earth. Don't get your priorities bent out of shape. Keep them focused in the right direction. When my wife and I first had our son, lots of people had advice. And those of you who've had children have been given lots of advice too. But one of the pieces of advice was love them and appreciate them while they're there because it'll be too soon and they'll be gone. We're looking at college in a couple of years. And then they're going to be gone. Those people were right who gave us that advice. We've only got a couple of years left, a few years left with our own to directly impact them. And then that privilege is gone. Proverbs chapter 17. And as you turn to Proverbs 17, as we think about kids, children, as a reward from God, the question is how do we treat our reward? How do we treat our reward? What kind of attention do we pay to our reward? Fathers, what kind of attention do we pay to our reward? This society is busy. And it's easy to get caught up with society. Get so busy that we just move through, through life like a hamster on a wheel. And we don't pay a lot of attention to what's going on around us. Proverbs 17, verse 6. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. The glory of children is their father. You know, there's a time in their life, in child's life, in a daughter's life, in a son's life, when dad is it. He's the most amazing thing in their life. Dad comes home from work and kids are jumping up and down. Daddy, daddy, daddy. We passed that time a while ago. (laughs) Now I come home from work and it's the dog. (laughs) Wagging her tail and jumping up and down. Maybe the kids sort of meander out of different parts of the house. 
But there's a time when daddy's everything and daddy's have got to make the most of it. But the first part of this verse, children's children are the crown of old men. And I would add old women. Grandparents, how much of a crown are your grandchildren? How much time do you spend? How much time do you spend with your crown? Impacting your crown for a future that is before them. Fathers need to make time, take time with their kids, with their sons to teach, to educate, to love, to play with because the time is fleeting. We mustn't make the mistake, brethren, that so many good people have made, so many good men have made, so many good godly leaders have made and neglect our kids and lose them. I'd like you to think about something. And again, from the perspective of what's not said in the Scripture, I'd like, I'm going to give you some names of some incredible godly leaders in this book. Think about the impact that these men had on the society around them, on the Israelites. Think about how they laid their lives down for the people around them. And then ask, what kind of an impact did they have on their sons? And I think you'll be sobered. Let's start with Moses. Think about the incredible example Moses set. What do we know about his sons? What about Aaron? The high priest, the first high priest of Israel. He had four sons to start with. Do you remember what happened to the first two? What about Eli? What happened to his two oldest sons? What about Samuel? Amazing Samuel, who as a boy God talked to, worked with. He led Israel. He anointed the first king. What happened to Samuel's sons? What about the man after God's own heart, David? An amazing king. What happened to most of his sons? What about some of the righteous kings like Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, men who turned the kingdoms around, got rid of idolatry, purged things, reinstituted the priesthood and the worship of God in the holy days? What happened to their sons? I've personally been reading back through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings recently, but I've been doing it in light of this class on Christian men that I've been teaching and the lectures I'm giving on raising boys. And these leaders have struck me by how strong of a leader they were, but by what they missed as well. I read a book for pastors years ago when I first came into the full-time ministry. And it was written by a worldly Christian pastor. <clears throat> but he had practical advice 
And some of it was very good. And he made the observation in one chapter. He said, you know, speaking to Christian pastors, keeping in mind, again, uh, the, the teachings of Christian, worldly Christian churches. He said, what, gentlemen, if you're able to get everybody in your congregation to heaven, but you don't get your wife and your kids there, what does that say about you? And I would have to rephrase that. What if we're able to motivate all of our congregation to overcome and to be those first fruits changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye when Christ returns and we miss the rest of our family? There's an excellent article in the current Living Church News, the March-April 2016 Living Church News. It's a, a rewrite and a rework from an article from Mr. Richard Sedliachik. And it's entitled, God, Family, Job, and Church. God, Family, Job, and Church. And in that, Mr. Sedliachik goes through and reminds us of what our priorities as Christians should be. God, first, then family, second, then job, third, and church, fourth. And they should be in that order. And what he means by God is what is our personal relationship with God, not how we serve God in the broader sense. It's our personal relationship with God. How close to him are we? How are we putting on his mind? Is that our first priority? Ladies, gentlemen, fathers, men, as you think about becoming fathers and husbands, what are your priorities today? Is God number one? Number two, family. Our second priority after God has to be our family. The privilege, the reward that we've read about. Raising them, helping them, serving them, guiding them, directing them. The third is job. Our work. Now, we're in headquarters here. Our headquarters congregation. And there are many of us as men who our work is working for the work of God. And ladies, too. And I'll tell you, it's a challenge sometimes to keep job and God, my relationship with God, separate. It's easy to let that merge. It's easy to think that, oh, I'm working for God. So that's my first priority. I'm working for God. No. I've seen too many children sacrificed on the altar of the church over the years that I've been in the church. I grew up in Pasadena, California. I saw a lot of ministers there. I've been in God's church for a long time. I've seen a lot of mistakes. I've made my own as a father. And it's a hard thing to separate job and, and, and worship of God. But it's got to be done. I have some ministers here, some younger ministers who set incredible examples for me. And remind me, I've got to help keep my priorities straight. Point number one is fathers have got to be present. Men, what are we doing to be present? Young, aspiring men, what kind of habits are you getting in now so that when God blesses you with wife and family, you will be present? Society, brethren, you know it, will suck us in if we're not careful. And before we know it, decades are gone. The kids are gone. And our opportunity is gone. There's another song from the 70s that comes to mind when I think of that, but I won't sing that one either. 
My encouragement is, gentlemen, get your priorities straight now. You have to do that. I have to do that. Point number one is fathers need to be present. Challenge yourself on that, gentlemen. Wives, help your husbands with that. Don't nag them. Encourage them like Barnabas did. Help them. But get your priorities straight now. Point number two, how do we create, how do we raise more godly boys and godly men? Point number two is to start teaching boys when they're very young. Start teaching them when they're very young. And then continue throughout their lives. Start teaching them when they're very young and continue throughout their lives. When I was working on my doctoral research, the project I worked on actually looked at how parents were involved in teaching and educating their kids. And what was interesting is that when kids are young, parents tend to be really involved in their lives. But as kids get older, into their early adolescent, late adolescent years, Parents tend to be less involved and let them be on their own even more. And there's a balance there. Obviously, as our kids grow up, they need more responsibility and more opportunity. But parents need to be just as involved, if not more, to help our kids navigate these very challenging times in Satan's world. Mr. Rod McNair, in 2007, in June, May, June, Tomorrow's World, wrote an article entitled Fatherless Families. Fatherless family, some of you may recall. He wrote, quote, As society becomes more decadent and self-obsessed, children need more than ever the strength and love of devoted fathers who will stand by them, support them, and be a hero to them. British psychiatrist Dr. Joshua Beer once observed, and then he quotes Dr. Beer, America is still the fatherless society. The husbands are not husbands. All the women are crying out for strong men, and he's just not there, unquote, from Dr. Beard. Mr. McNair continues, children need fathers, and women need husbands, who will not bend to peer pressure of what other parents do. Children need committed fathers who look out for their future character, not just bowing to their every whim and wish. Fathers have got to start being fathers. Parents have got to start being parents when the kids are young. We've got to teach them when they're young. And we've got to continue as they grow. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let's look at the child-rearing advice that we're given through Moses. The advice is sound. The advice is powerful. The advice is important. And what's interesting is the advice is inclusive as well. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 9. Deuteronomy 4, 9. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Then he says, he continues, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. What's interesting here is it's not just the responsibility of the parents to teach the kids, is it? It's the responsibility of grandparents too. What do we see in much of our society with the involvement of grandparents in the lives of their kids? What has society done to families? 
It stretches us out, doesn't it? All across the country, or all across the world in some cases, how many kids don't grow up sitting on grandparents' laps and hearing the stories that many of you may have? God is admonishing and encouraging parents, teach your kids from the time they're young. Grandparents, teach your kids from the time they're young. Grandparents have got to be involved. Grandparents hold that special place for children, don't they? You remember what it was like to be a grandchild and go see your grandparent or grandparents, don't you? Most of you have very fond memories of that. Tell you what, it's an interesting experience as a parent to watch your own kids with their grandparents. There's just a different relationship. It's a special relationship. It's a grand relationship. Yet it's a relationship that too many in society neglect because life is busy and opportunities are lost. Life is busy and opportunities are lost. Deuteronomy 6. Actually, why don't you turn to Proverbs 22. And I'm going to reference Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. If you're taking notes, you might want to look that up. We're admonished to teach our children throughout the day. When you rise up in the morning, when you walk by the way, when you go to sleep in the evening, we've got to be teaching constantly. In fact, Dr. Jeff Fall in his successful parenting booklet talks about creating a godly culture in our home. Not a godly day in our home, you know, Friday night to Saturday, but a godly culture where God is at the heart of it all day long, seven days a week. God wants us teaching and training our kids and showing them there is a way of life that leads to life. Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. Let me catch up with you. Proverbs 22 and verse 6, powerful scripture, one you probably can quote from memory. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. You train your children. We train our children from the time they're very young, not just with our mouths, but what's the most powerful training tool that we have? Think about it. What's the most powerful training tool we have? We heard about it in the first sermon today. It's the example that we said, isn't it? Yes, what we say is critical, but it needs to align with what we do. And when it does, we really can impact our children. We really can impact our boys as they grow up. But we've got to train them. Parents, grandparents, we've got to train our children because if we don't, Somebody or something else will. Fathers, training children is not a wife-only responsibility. We've got to remember that. Even if our kids happen to be schooled at home, are blessed to be schooled at home, fathers have got to be involved in the educational process too. We've got to teach them about life. We've got to teach them about God. We've got to teach them about relationships. We've got to be involved. We can't let... Schools be the only teachers today. Schools and daycare. Because these things are orchestrated by Satan. 
This is his society. Yes, there's good in them, but there's a lot of evil too. And if we leave the education of our children to the schools, we're turning them over to the society of Satan. Plain and simple, the alternative reality, alternate universe that Dr. Meredith's been talking about, is a reality for most. We've got to make sure that we're not letting television, internet, and video games train our children. And in many cases today, we are. A little tiny bit can be okay. But too much of it is not a good thing. If I have the opportunity to speak to you again, I'll finish the sermon. And we'll talk more about the research behind this stuff. And the impact that it has on boys not becoming men. There are physiological things that happen in a boy's body and in his mind that keep the process from happening the way God designed it to be. So we've got to be careful with that. We've also got to not rely on this female-dominated society to raise boys into men. I think it's Dr. Dobson who talks about how a mother can raise a boy, but it takes a father to raise a man. Think about it. Brethren, we must teach our sons. Fathers, we must teach our sons. Mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, we must teach our sons and our grandsons about God and the reality of God, about what it means to be a godly man. Gentlemen, your sons learn from watching you more than anything else. My son learns, sadly, he learns from watching me. If I'm not on my toes, if I'm not close to God, if I'm not doing what I need to be doing, I'm setting him the wrong example. And he'll learn from that. We've got to teach our sons how to be leaders, how to take the reins and how to lead, how to take initiative, how to drive himself and overcome laziness. Something that's inherent in society and human nature and definitely inherent in boys. We've got to teach them about the importance of obtaining a good education, excellent training, so we can take care of a wife and a family in the future. We've got to teach him how to treat a girl, how to treat a woman. And how to treat a wife. Our example, again, is more powerful to our sons, gentlemen, and our grandsons, gentlemen, than most understand. Point number two on how to raise boys and how to raise men is that fathers must, and all of us, must start teaching boys when they're very young and continue throughout their lives. Point number three. Point number three, how do we raise godly boys to become godly men? Fathers, grandfathers, men, we must teach boys to work hard and to enjoy it. Teach boys to work hard and enjoy it. But notice I said fathers need to do this, grandfathers need to do this, men need to do this. We might be a man, we might not have boys. But gentlemen, you can be involved in this process. Think about the admonition at the end of Mr. Frank's sermon. Think about how you can mentor. Think about the impact that you can have. I really appreciate it. There are men in this congregation 
who round up some of our teenage boys and get them busy and get them working and give them the opportunity to work and the opportunity to get dirty in a lot of cases and in some cases work with them too. Thank you to those of you who do that. Fathers and grandfathers, we've got to make time to do the same thing. If we teach our boys hard work, brethren, we've got to be modeling it as well. We've got to be modeling it, gentlemen. Society is permeated with laziness and an attitude of entitlement. I don't have to work, just give it to me. We've got to push our boys to, not, to know that that's not the case. We really have to push our boys to work. We have to push them to work and to learn to like to work. We have to be careful. You can push too hard and something breaks. But they need to be pushed, admonished, encouraged. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 9.10. Ecclesiastes 9.10. Children in Bible class, I hope you put a check next to that. One of their memory scriptures. Ecclesiastes 9.10. We'll read the first part of it here. Actually, we'll read the whole thing. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. We've got to teach our boys to do whatever they do with their might. What does society want to do today? Take it easy, right? Relax. Don't work hard. What's the rush? Get a good paying job so you can put your feet up. We've got to teach boys to work hard. John chapter 9. Christ made an observation in John 9 about hard work. And the importance of doing it when it needed to be done. John chapter 9 and verse 4. Jesus Christ made the observation, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Christ had a sense of urgency in his mission. Yes, he knew that he had a short ministry. But he had to do it then. We have to teach boys to work hard and to do it now. To learn to do it now. We must not let them. And this is a job of fathers. It's a job of mothers. It's a job of grandparents. We must not let men, let boys, waste their time in meaningless activities. Meaningless activities. Can you think of a few? What are meaningless activities that waste time and teach virtually nothing? Our society is filled with them, isn't it? Television, video games, other wasteful pursuits. I can remember growing up, my father and my mother, go play outside. Get out from in front of the television. Do something productive with your time. It got old after a while. They're both sitting in the audience. (laughs) Tables are turned, Dad. But it was wonderful advice, and they did. They pushed us outside. They never, virtually never let us waste time, even when it was freezing outside or below zero. I grew up near Boston for a good bit of my life. And we had some pretty chilly winters. Go outside. Go sledding. Go do something with your time that you're going to be creative with. You know, we are here 
in the Deep South. And there's a line from an old movie called Gone with the Wind that some of you may be familiar with. Scarlett O'Hara is known for making the observation, thinking about this in terms of Ecclesiastes 9.10. She made the observation, I'll worry about that tomorrow. After all, you know the rest of it? Tomorrow is another day. Very different than Christ's perspective on, I've got to work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Very different than the diligent ant in Proverbs chapter 6 who built and worked while it was summer before the winter came. We've got to teach our boys the importance of hard work. Psalm 128. Psalm 128. And we're going to read verse 2. Psalm 128. We were in Psalm 127 a few minutes ago. Psalm 128 and verse... When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. When you eat the labor of your hands, when you've worked hard, and you're able to enjoy the benefits of that hard labor, it will be well with you. One of the things in teaching boys to work hard is also teaching them that there's satisfaction that comes with hard work. Satisfaction. You can look back at what you've done, at the blood, sweat, and tears, and you've got something to show for it. I'll tell a story on my son here. A couple of months ago, we painted the house, the front of the house, and it had needed painting for a couple of years. It didn't look great. It didn't look terrible, but it, it needed some work. And before we got started, he said, Dad, this looks fine. We should just leave it. And part of me felt the same way because I knew what was coming. This was not an afternoon project because I had to borrow a power washer and we had to wash the house first. And then we had to take all the shutters off the house. Actually, we did that before we power washed it. And then we painted. It took us two days of painting. He had the roller. I had the brush and was cutting in. Two days of painting. Then we had to paint the shutters and they had to dry. And then we got it all put back together. It was about a four-day process. It was a lot of work. But guess what the perspective was when we were done? Wow. That really looks good. He knew it would look good when he was done. But hard work pays off. Whether you're working in the yard or in the office, Many of you are employers and hire employees, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. People don't want to work today, but they do want the paycheck and the bonus. When we teach our boys to work hard, we're giving them life skills that are going to take them a long way in their life and that they're going to be able to pass on to their own sons and daughters. Proverbs talks about how the hand of the diligent will rule. The diligent, the ones who work hard, the ones who stick to it. We need to teach these to our sons and our grandsons, ladies and gentlemen, mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, and men. To you, young men, older men, 
I encourage you, build these personal habits of diligence and hard work. Don't let yourself be lazy. Fight it. It's there, I know. I feel it every morning when my alarm clock goes off. And when I have to do other things like paint the house. That's not my favorite chore. But we've got to learn to build the habits of diligence and hard work to appreciate it, to drive ourselves to overcome laziness. Dr. Meredith reminds us of that constantly. We've got to drive ourselves. Spiritually, yes, but if we don't drive ourselves physically, the spiritual is going to be hard to get to. We've got to pass on the character trait of hard work and the enjoyment of hard work, brethren, to our sons and our grandsons. And it will benefit them a lifetime. It's a gift that will enable them to be abundantly blessed later on in their lives. Brethren, God created and he designed men for many important reasons and with an incredible potential. In Satan's society, that he's purposely designed to deconstruct the roles of men and women, we have to be on our guard as parents, as fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers. We have to be, we have to learn to be uber vigilant, very sharp, very on top of things, and to recapture the true values of Christian menhood. Today we discussed three important tasks in raising boys and raising men. We talked about number one, to raise a truly godly masculine man, fathers have got to be present. If you're in the role, gentlemen, use it. If you're not present enough, change. And I say that with three fingers pointing back at me. I'm in the role, the privileged role. I am a father. And I was given that title and that privilege by my father in heaven. Gentlemen, we've got to use what we've been given. We've got to be present in our sons' lives. Grandfathers, be present in the lives of your grandsons. Point number two is we've got to train and teach and educate, but we've got to do it from the time they're young. And we can't quit. Once they get to be teenagers, we've got to see them through. Point number three is boys need to be taught to work hard and to learn to enjoy hard work, to take pride in that hard work. Dads and granddads need to be involved in teaching and training, creating opportunities, creating projects to help them. Moms need to be around pushing boys to do this too. Gentlemen, men, at any stage in your life, we need to make sure that we're ingraining these characteristics into our own character, even more, whether old or young. We need to be involved in young people's lives. Some of us have grown up without parents, excuse me, without fathers. That's not the end of things. Not by a long shot. Your future's in your hands. God gives us guidelines. He gives us things to think about and areas to grow in. And we can look around, gentlemen, and find role models, excellent role models in God's church to follow as truly godly, masculine men. Watch what they do. Learn from them. Get to know them. See what makes them tick. 
Just because your background may be somewhat disadvantaged to start with doesn't mean it has to come out that way. You can end up strong as a godly man yourself. Brethren, we need to practice these things. We need to exemplify them to our boys and our young men. I encourage you, think about these points that we talked about today. Learn to put them into practice. I do want to leave you with two book titles because I can just scratch the surface here. There are lots of books on fathering and parenting and raising boys. These are two of the best that I've seen. The first one's entitled Better Dads, Stronger Sons. Better Dads, Stronger Sons. It's written by Rick Johnson. It can be read by men. It can be read by women. Grandmothers and grandfathers. If you're a man and you haven't read it, and you don't have children yet, read it anyway. He breaks this thing up into very easy-to-understand chapters. It's very practical. Better Dads, Stronger Sons. This other one's called Stepping Up. And the subtitle is A Call to Courageous Manhood. A Call to Courageous Manhood. This thing is fantastic. He breaks it up into very short chapters, so they're easy to go through, but he addresses men at different stages in life. He starts out by talking about what courage is. He then talks about how to raise boys. He then moves on to how to raise a young man in adolescence, how to work with a son who's in manhood. The fourth step relates to the sermon, the first sermon. How to become a mentor to others, other men. And the fifth one is how to be the patriarch. He even speaks to those in the grandfather stage of life on how to be a man as a patriarch. Some helpful tools that you might want to think about. God has given us a privilege, brethren, to raise the next generation, the future generation of members of the God family. Raising boys is at the heart of this. I encourage you, think about it. Take these points to heart. And I think every one of us can have a hand, no matter what stage of life we're in and no matter where we sit, on raising the next generation of men.